Welcome to Big Martech, the big show where we talk about the big topics, the big ideas, and the big news in the marketing technology industry. I'm Juan. I'm Scott. So, so Scott, welcome to another week of Big Martech, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's another big week. It's another big week. But what are the headlines? What are you reading this week? Wow. Well, let me share something I came across uh, uh, this uh, week here, and it was... <laughs> Uh, the wonderful folks at uh, Group M uh, had gone ahead and uh, published uh, their latest uh, uh, e-commerce uh, retail uh, uh, predictions here for 2022 estimates. Uh, and they're estimating a total global retail sales of $28.3 trillion, out of which $5.4 trillion is e-commerce. And while that's only about 19% of total retail sales, Anytime you have the word like trillion involved, as in 5.4 trillion, uh, then whew, that's still a pretty significant number. Uh, so I think, yeah, just sort of keeping in this context of obviously there's this enormous acceleration in e-commerce that happened during the pandemic. A little bit of a readjustment here coming out of it, uh, if we can say we're coming out of it, uh, but still just a massive e-commerce space. Two things I would shout out for here. Uh, one is this is really B2C. There's a parallel world that is happening around B2B commerce. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that in uh, ecosystems in a bit. Uh, and then the other thing to shout out is, yeah, something you've been paying close attention to as well, Juan, uh, which is the growth of retail media uh, as a new ad channel. I mean, oh my goodness, $843 billion being spent uh, on advertising worldwide, but a hundred billion of that already uh, going to retail media. What are your thoughts? Well, I've got a hot take and it might be right and it might be wrong, but I'm going to put it out there and see what you think, Scott. But, uh, I think retail media is an interesting one because, um, it's a very different type of media when it comes to advertising. So retail media is a concept of say you're shopping at Walmart or you're shopping at Amazon or you're shopping at Tesco and uh, you're receiving ads um, to purchase certain products. So retail media works really well for say CPG brands where they are advertising everywhere else, but now all of these e-commerce marketplaces are now opening up ad spaces and targeting and their own ad networks to support that uh, advertising within that sort of direct sales relationship with that retailer. But the problem with that, in my view, and this is my hot take, get ready for it, brace yourself, brace yourself. My hot take is that, well, it's a really hard one when it comes to attribution. Customers are there to purchase. If you're going on to walmart.com and you're going to purchase some products, you're probably only already there. So advertising may not be as effective for customers that are already in that purchasing phase in the, in the customer life cycle. And so I think it's an interesting one. There's a lot of growth in that space. It's obviously it's eyeballs, it's attention, great way to position your products within the consumer journey where they're looking and selecting and comparing products. But I think the jury is still out on attribution. I think retail media is going through this huge wave right now. As you said, there's billions and billions of dollars that's being spent on that particular niche within advertising. But give it uh, give it six months give it 12 months and then we'll start to see some of the attribution reporting that comes out into the market and say well does this actually lead to more customers that we wouldn't have uh, gone otherwise if we didn't advertise say on walmart or on tesco.com so that's my hot take what are your thoughts scott <laughs> hmm. i think it's a it's it's a fair question to raise i think the one i would look at would be amazon 
you know, because I feel like Amazon has become such a discovery engine, not just a commerce transaction engine that I suspect out of all the, you know, large retail media giants we're talking about, they are the giant of giants at the moment. Uh, and I wonder the degree to which they might have a better case for being able to insert people in the discovery process, but, uh, agreed more data, more data will tell us uh, a lot about the efficacy on the road ahead. So what did you come across this past week? Well, uh, I, in our first episode of Big Martech, so we launched last week, I was very happy, very excited about that. And also the reception has been awesome. A lot of people coming out to say, finally, there's something like Big Martech out there to talk about the news industry research week to week. And so I had an absolute ball there. We launched that show while I was in San Francisco. So I actually flew back from San Francisco to Melbourne, Australia, my homeland. And um, I was actually part of the Dreamforce crowd, if you want to call it that. So, you know, Dreamforce takes over San Francisco as a city every time, uh, every, this time of year, every year. Um, not a big crowd, not as big as crowd as last time and back in 2019 pre-pandemic where uh, they had, I think, more than 100,000 people. This time it was about 30 to 40,000 people, but it was still massive. I mean, it's great to see out people out and about connecting in person uh, to see vendors out there exhibiting. I mean, it's, it's awesome to see all that come to market, but I think Dreamforce announcements, there's sort of two things that are on the horizon for uh, Salesforce, which I think is quite interesting to talk about. The first is Slack Canvas. Now, Slack was acquired by Salesforce. It's one of the biggest software acquisitions in the world. I think it's the third or the fourth largest. Um, and so Salesforce is being big on Slack as a workplace communications tool, uh, collaboration suite as well. But they actually announced um, the Canvas, which is this collaborative workspace, not quite like Miro, where you have this sort of endless sprawling digital whiteboard where you can do anything with it. It's more structured. It's more like a Word document or it's more like perhaps a sort of Atlassian confluence page. But they're starting to introduce documentation within the tool itself. Now, for years and years and years, Slack has been a direct messaging platform for businesses. And now they're moving into this space of creating more of a work, work suite sort of solution. Uh, this is really interesting when you look in the context of, say, Canva. They're offering their own sort of workplace collaboration uh, with do, uh, documents, presentations, and all of that. So there seems to be still quite a bit of race for taking away some of the Microsoft Word slash PowerPoint market and all the other collaboration tools out there. The advantage, of course, for Slack is that, well, they already have eyeballs. They already have a huge customer set. Um, and so that makes a ton of interesting, interesting angles on how they can acquire customers for that particular product. One thing, use case, I thought was quite interesting from the Canvas product was the ability to, um, to onboard a, a new employee. So you add them to a channel and then you can give them onboarding documentation right in that channel. So they can ask questions, they can collaborate within that Canvas workspace. So I think that's the first one. It's really interesting. But what are your thoughts about that and what's happening in that productivity sort of documentation uh, collaboration space? Yeah, it's a really exciting space. Uh, you know, I mean, there's some of these uh, products from like sort of the no code angle here that have been incredibly successful there, things like Notion and Coda. Um, it is a very competitive space. Um, I'll be curious to see, yeah, how people adopt um, uh, the Slack canvas versus creating something in like Notion or Coda or Asana or Monday or, you know, uh, uh, any of these. And then just some like putting the link uh, in Slack. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, um, you know, the old joke used to be that, you know, in a long enough time horizon, like every, 
every company eventually becomes like a, a, a financial, uh, you know, play, uh, like a financial services play. Maybe the joke <laughs> is actually on a long enough time horizon, everyone becomes a collaborative workspace tool. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about another time horizon, which is the second big announcement from Dreamforce, which was Salesforce Genie. Salesforce Genie, what is that? Well, that is uh, perhaps an extension of their existing CDP offering. So Salesforce had, um, over the past five years, they've been making a lot of moves from CRM to customer data platforms. They acquired Evergage a number of years ago. They have also, they introduced a concept, which was Audience 360, which was their sort of first sort of integrated all channels and rich in the data and then activated across channels. And then Audience 360 didn't make a lot of sense to consumers. The branding wasn't super consistent. So they rebranded it to Salesforce CDP. And then now two years later, now they've got Salesforce Genie, which is this concept that uses artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, but also does real-time interaction management. So to real-time activation of customer data in the milliseconds that it's needed. Now, why is this important? Well, it sort of goes to your point before Scott about how, you know, give a tech company a long enough time horizon, they go into fintech or they go into productivity and creativity. Um, this is that play around CDP and that continued investment. So Dreamforce was so much more about the CDP this year than it was about the CRM. And I think a big part of that is the need for brands as they become more mature to actually use the customer data that they have in all different locations. And if we roll back to our first episode last week, we also talked about the Salesforce and Snowflake integration partnership. Again, being able to leverage data warehouse, um, all that data sets, data sitting in cold storage, being able to use, leverage that within the Salesforce ecosystem of apps is really interesting. If you go onto the Genie um, partner ecosystem um, page, you can see that there's already a number of integrations like live ramp and a whole bunch of ad tech players that are going to try to plug into Genie to activate um, real-time data as it's happened. So when a customer is purchasing something, they may get suppressed from a targeting list, say with advertising. You know, some of those interesting concepts are just starting to come into market, but I think the Genie one is going to be a, an interesting one to watch. You know, Salesforce lead the market CRM. Can they be the market leader in CDP? I think the jury's still out, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, actually no longer a joke on uh, a short enough time horizon, every MarTech company becomes a CDP company. Um, <laughs> but I think, that the, I mean, the trend that we talked about before, and if I'm reading between the lines on Genie, that I think makes this most intriguing to me is this idea between the frontline apps and ops that we run, you know, the things that are actually where, you know, our employees have, you know, their employee experience or customers have their customer experiences, that layer. And then there's this foundational layer below of, you know, almost like the universal data ops layer where cloud data warehouses like, uh, you know, Snowflake uh, exists, you know, and the, the distance between those two over time has been a somewhat convoluted path that didn't always connect. You know, this was, you know, classic ETL, classic reverse ETL. But I think what we're seeing here, and part of this is very much being driven by uh, Snowflake, they're certainly earning their valuation in the market, you know, is to say, actually, if we can make that data layer, you know, actually accessible for running operations, if not maybe real time, but even close to real time, relevant time, 
it's almost like you can collapse the distance between those frontline apps, you know, things like Salesforce, things like HubSpot, things like Market, you name it, like collapse the distance between that and the data warehouse. And now all of a sudden, yeah, you're exactly right. Marketers have access to this much broader smorgasbord, you know, of data that they're able to pull from, uh, you know, in both the design of segments and campaigns and creative. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's another great step in that direction. Uh, cheers. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, Salesforce, they're, they're good. Like it's kind of like Apple in, in the sense that like you can see what they're working on now. And then two or three years later down the path, you can see, wow, okay. They, that made a big shift in the industry. And I think that's part of the genie aspect is a real finger on the pulse to say, well, yeah, um, you know, real-time data activation is becoming increasingly important for brands. Um, the ability to tap into not just marketing data, but sales and customer service data and operational data is actually becoming more important as well. But let's jump into our big chat this week. Um, Scott, you are a, I have to say, you have, you are a ecosystem fanatic. You absolutely love working in partner operations, ecosystem, platform operations. Like you've done an amazing uh, piece just this week around uh, partner operations and the role and the rise of these ecosystems and exploring all the different ecosystems in the tech landscape. So let's jump into the big chat. What is the ecosystem um, sort of trends that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, well, I am happy to chat about this. Um, uh, and of course, you know, all right. So my, uh, my work at HubSpot is I'm the VP of platform ecosystem there. So surprise, surprise that I would be an ecosystem advocate. Uh, but it's not just me, you know, actually even this whole name ecosystem. I remember when I, uh, joined HubSpot in 2017 and I, uh, uh, they let me pick my title and I'm like, all right, I want platform ecosystem. And people inside HubSpot, but even, yeah, more people outside HubSpot were like, ecosystem? What? Like, you know, the way in which like predators and prey and fish and flora <laughs> and fauna. Uh, and you're like, well, yes, but the digital metaphor for that, you know, you fast forward five years uh, and so much of the conversation, uh, you know, inside the C-suite has shifted to this concept of ecosystems around companies, around markets, you know, the, 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 the classic linear supply chain and linear distribution chain, you know, the digital world is kind of, yeah, you know, blown that apart. Uh, well, now, even across our suppliers and the ways in which we reach our customers, there's many times this like entangled web of many different providers, many possible different substitutes for different customers. They might be working with multiple different partners. They might be connecting through different channels, you know, and to start to be able to look at this, not in a linear fashion, but as an interconnected ecosystem. Uh, this really seems to be from the highest sea level, uh, you know, shift uh, in strategy. Uh, and to, yeah, speak to this amount, uh, you know, like when we talk high level C, C-suite strategy, of course, we'll bring up, you know, something from McKinsey. Uh, you know, I've just been reading uh, an article from them the other week uh, where they had quantified, you know, the size of these ecosystems around major markets. I mean, around B2B marketplace is already a $17 trillion market. We were talking uh, earlier about, uh, you know, the size of uh, the B2C e-commerce space. Well, the B2B uh, marketplace, B2B commerce uh, is huge. Collectively, all these different marketplaces, all these different ecosystems around whether it's B2B, uh, you know, products or services or 
corporate services, or even as you start to move out into right the whole world of uh, you know the health economy, uh, public services. I mean, collectively, seventy trillion. So what do you do with all these ecosystems? How do you manage it? Well, it turns out there's a whole wave uh, of technology. I'm going to call this marketing technology, MarTech too, uh, appropriate here for uh, big MarTech, um, that a fellow named Jay McBain, who used to be with uh, Forrester and is now uh, at uh, an analyst firm, uh, Canalyst, you know, has been tracking this specific collection uh, of capabilities. So it's things for like, uh, you know, products you use to launch your own marketplace, uh, products you use to be able to find and discover partners, the way in which you, uh, you know, handle incentive management inside your different channels. How do you share data? You know, uh, some of the exciting stuff that's been happening with companies like Crossbeam and Reveal and PartnerTap, you know, so that you can do account mapping across different partners within an ecosystem. Uh, being able to align on things like true channel marketing automation. As I have an ecosystem, how do I distribute, you know, marketing capabilities through these partners? Um, whew, you know, I could go on. Uh, <laughs> definitely a landscape worth digging into. But the part of what I wanted to shout out about this is, you know, it's not just the technology. As with everything else in MarTech, you know, the tech is a tiny piece of what really needs to fit into a larger view of our strategy and operations. How do we win with ecosystems? And so we've all talked about marketing ops and sales ops and the combination of these things under revenue ops or rev ops. In many ways, partner ops is kind of a part of that whole revenue uh, ops landscape, but it hasn't gotten as much love and it hasn't gotten as much attention. And I actually think this is a really great opportunity for people in MarTech because, you know, let's just pick something like I mentioned uh, data sharing, you know, among partners in an ecosystem using things like Crossbeam or Reveal. Um, okay, yes, that's useful for how partner ops teams, you know, can like match data, you know, between their company and their partners. But when you think about it from a marketing ops and MarTech perspective, oh my goodness, to suddenly be able to get data, you know, into our MarTech universe, this is probably some of the most valuable second party data, you know, that a company can have. And so you're able to now, from a marketing ops perspective, be able to start creating lists to like identify, oh, well, these folks who are a customer of our you know, company, and they are a prospect of this other company, and perhaps they're already an open opportunity for this new upgrade. To be able to like systematically identify that and start to work that into our automation, uh, you know, cadences. I mean, this is, this is incredible stuff. And so I think, uh, you know, one shout out here is to, you know, marketing tech, marketing ops folks to, to get more familiar with this space. I think this is a great leverage point. And the other thing I would say is just broadly about ecosystem and ecosystem thinking is <laughs> bringing up my old graph of, uh, you know, MarTech's law, right? This idea, you know, technology changes at an exponential rate. Organizations, well, do not change at an exponential rate, <laughs> you know? And so we always, you know, have been in this struggle of, you know, the gap between those two curves, the blue and the yellow. And there's a few things we can do. We can never entirely close that gap, but we can be very strategic about which changes we embrace. We can do things like, uh, you know, adopt agile management practices to like, uh, you know, accelerate the rate of change within our org. 
can we be faster than our competitors? But I'd actually argue that leaning into things like community-led growth, ecosystems, these actually also become a way of boosting our organizational change because it opens us up to being able to not just have the thinking that's inside our four walls, but to get better and better at collaboratively thinking and collaboratively going to market you know, with a much broader set of partners, I think actually allows companies to adapt much more quickly. And so that's another huge benefit uh, leaning into the ecosystem side of things. But what do you think of this? Well, there was one quote that really grabbed me from the article. Um, and I, I do recommend people who are working in marketing ops to check it out because I think it's a really awesome summary of the changes in thinking about ecosystem, partner operations, even marketplaces as well. Um, the quote is this, when you hear people talking about community-led growth, that's an ecosystem. When you hear people talking about second-party data, that's an ecosystem. When you hear people talking about marketplaces, that's an ecosystem. I think it gets an interesting shift. And, you know, just to play on what you were saying earlier before, Scott, was that, you know, why would you use this word that is used for, so how you describe nature, right? Like an ecosystem is like, you know, ecology is this whole domain of like protecting wildlife, right? Why would you use that for tech? Well, we love using nature metaphors for tech, don't we, Scott? That's number one. But number two, I think, is that if you extend the idea of ecosystem to food chain, then you get this interesting concept, which is, well, in the food chain, there are, you know, there are uh, creatures that get eaten and there are creatures that eat, right? There are people at the top of the ladder and there are people at the bottom of the ladder. And that's just the food chain. I think you can extend the concept. I think, I think you know, when we think, when we look at ecosystems, I mean, you've got the big plays. So, you know, you've got the Salesforce app exchange ecosystem. It's huge, right? And it's massive. And that's why it's going back to Dreamforce. Dreamforce is such a big event. It's because the ecosystem is the community which drives that value for Salesforce. Um, I've been in numerous buying decisions for CRMs and Salesforce comes up because of their ecosystem. It's a value proposition, the integrations, the ability to connect with services. I know HubSpot have done an, an excellent job. They've, they're creating this huge ecosystem, not just of so other softwares that integrate, but also of partner services, consultancies, and practitioners that plug into the HubSpot uh, world and use the tech uh, in a specific way. So. The ecosystem is, it, there's the great benefits of that. It, it, I think it gives um, technology companies the ability to grow and scale really fast, especially as they're coming to market. Great for GTM. But there is the food chain aspect as well, which is, well, the winner takes all type concept. I mean, it's very hard to recreate a Salesforce ecosystem, which means Salesforce as a platform, um, they get the lion's share of value. But a one, one aspect of this I want to share is that, well, if you look at Microsoft, uh, their way of doing ecosystems is super interesting. So when they uh, announced uh, Windows 11, they also announced, and I didn't get a lot of coverage, was that they are actually now um, cutting off any take rate from developer apps within the Windows 11 app store. So Apple take 20% of all revenue from apps generated within the app store. Windows have gone the other direction completely and said, if you're developing an app in the Windows ecosystem, uh, we won't take any revenue out of that total picture. It all belongs to you, developer. And Windows have been very careful about their ecosystem and how the incentives that they create for developers and for people building software and services within their environment. So I do think, you know, maybe we could extend it out a bit. The ecosystem is one aspect. And I think there's these, these growing sort of go-to-market movements around the ecosystem, but we need to also think about the winner-takes-all dynamics as well. 
for the companies that establish and maintain the ecosystem. But for me, I'm always jumping on this type road and thinking, well, what's the trade-offs? What's the benefits? I think Windows is a really great model for thinking about how do you actually give as much value back to that community as possible and for the people who are building apps and services. I couldn't uh, agree uh, more. You know, I suspect actually these take rates out of ecosystems was sort of like a more of the exception rather than the rule. Um, and to be honest, yeah, you know, where the value in the ecosystems is from that cohesion, that is actually the winner take all you know, capability. And in a world where, let's face it, you know, as APIs become more open, we were just talking earlier about how the data layer is becoming this somewhat universal, you know, data layer. It's going to be harder and harder for people to like keep the walls, you know, around a particular walled garden in B2B software. What's going to hold people together is actually this more organic force of the ecosystem itself. So, uh, Yes, uh, 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 care, feed and nurturing of your ecosystem. <laughs> uh, they don't, they don't happen overnight, Scott. Yeah, they don't happen overnight. You know, HubSpot have had consistent effort over many, many years to get to where you are now. And these things don't happen overnight. And so, you know, we do have some of those big players in B2B, but I, I think it's a great time to be building our own ecosystem as well. I think there's, you know, there's so much opportunity in this space. It's massive. Um, and yeah, I highly recommend checking out Scott's article. It's a great deep dive, great way of thinking about ecosystem and the role it plays in our uh, tech industry right now. But Scott, have you got a shout out this week? I've got one. What's yours? Well, I'm just going to keep uh, rolling with this theme we were on. So. <laughs> I promise I am not going to like do self-promotion here on uh, shout outs as a regular thing, but I cannot help sharing this one thing. Speaking of ecosystems, speaking of HubSpot uh, is uh, HubSpot was just recently awarded uh, as a leader uh, in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for marketing automation. Uh, we were a leader previously, but now we're a leader higher up in that curve. But they have like three things that they call out of like, oh, this is why we really love HubSpot as a leader. And one of the three was the ecosystem, this, you know, just wide collection of uh, integrations, uh, you know, the large app marketplace, uh, that the things you want to do from your tech stack, putting it together with HubSpot makes it better. So, all right, that'll be the end of my uh, self-promotion there. But yeah. hey, you know, this, this ecosystem stuff is actually like uh, panning out here. So uh, what's your shout out, my friend? No, no. Well, congratulations. It's always so rewarding to see the brand that you work for, um, achieve those things. So it's, it's always great. Hopefully you had a bit of a party in the office. If you went to the office, that is, uh, but, over my, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my, my shout out is an interesting one. It's a thought priest, uh, for a gentleman named Tim O'Brien. He did this great piece around data anonymization and why it doesn't work. And, uh, it's a really great discussion, really well researched. One of the best research pieces I've seen about this topic about anonymizing data and really broad strokes. The whole concept is about, well, the, we're moving towards a more private web and ad tech companies and advertisers are thinking about, well, how do we protect the privacy of our user? How do we anonymize, um, their identification, uh, the way that they're targeted, uh, who they are. How do we anonymize that so we protect their privacy? So there's this interesting trade-off about, well, we don't want to know too much about that person at an individual level. We want to keep them anonymous. On the other side is that, well, we still want to target them with ads. We still want to target them with, say, website personalization or an email campaign. So how do we keep that privacy aspect while also maintaining the targeting and the, the value proposition around 
that using that data that's collecting the user. So I think it's a great um, sort of think piece about, well, why doesn't it work? Uh, how much data do analysts actually have when they're pulling reports and when they're doing micro-targeting? And what are the open doors there in terms of anonymization? I think there's a lot of interesting work that needs to be done in that space, um, but I'll leave it there for now. Tim O'Brien, check it out. It's a great piece on Substack um, and uh, have a look. It's a great way of thinking about anonymous data and how brands are using it today. Fantastic. Well, I think that brings us to the conclusion of another exciting big week in MarTech. Uh, don't miss an episode by uh, subscribing at bigmartech.com. And hey, go do big things. Juan and I are rooting for you.